Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, stories of struggle, hope, and survival in the face of colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 11 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. I'm pretty excited about this episode as we're doing something new that we've not yet done in previous episodes. I had the pleasure of interviewing not one, but two guests at the same time. And before I get to the details of this episode, what we're doing is we're starting to branch out a little bit. We started off just interviewing colon cancer survivors and sharing their stories, and we will continue to do that. We will never abandon the foundation of this podcast and sharing the stories of survivors. But now we are also delving into the clinical side, the genetic side. During episode seven, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Travis Bray, founder of the Hereditary Colon Cancer Foundation. And in this episode, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing two amazing women. Georgia Hurst is a Lynch Syndrome advocate and founder of the nonprofit IHaveLynchSyndrome.com. Ellen Matloff is the president and CEO of My Gene Council and is the former director of cancer genetic counseling at Yale School of Medicine. So join me for my conversation with Georgia Hurst and Ellen Matloff. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you making the time. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So Georgia, I want to start with you, if you would kind of take me back through uh, your your family history uh, leading up to where you are today. My brother, Jimmy, passed away from colon cancer 20 years ago, and we did not know about Lynch syndrome at the time. And so it wasn't until about five years ago when my other brother was diagnosed at the age of 48 that this was really a big issue. And so he had three feet of his colon removed um, at that time. And then six months later at a follow-up colonoscopy, the colon cancer had returned with a vengeance. And his doctor was fortunately familiar with Lynch syndrome and requested that he get genetically tested for it. And he tested positive. And that is when I discovered that I needed to seek genetic counseling and also be tested. So I did test positive for MLH1. And soon thereafter, after consulting with my genetic counselor and doing my own research and, and talking to some friends and friends of mine who were PhDs and whatnot, who had backgrounds in science, everyone had kind of agreed that this was really the best route to go as far as having prophylactic hysterectomy and oophorectomy for me, because I was at increased risk for developing endometrial and ovarian cancer. So in order to prevent cancer to my reproductive organs, I underwent the prophylactic hysterectomy and oophorectomy right away after finding out. And my experience was from it was such a hellacious one that it was the impetus for my blog because when I was going through all of this, there really wasn't anything available to me about what I was going through, and I felt very alone and isolated. And so 
there wasn't anyone out there with Lynch syndrome talking about, you know, having this prophylactic hysterectomy, nephrectomy at a young age. And I knew that there must be some other people sharing comparable experiences with me. No one, it was just, no one was willing to talk about it at the time. So that's, that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. So you mentioned something interesting, and I, I always try to find uh, the positive in it, in anything. And what I'm taking from what you've shared so far is you had in-depth knowledge of your family history and was immediately counseled to seek genetic counseling. So many people that I speak to, it doesn't matter what type of, of cancer we're talking about or even other ailments, don't find, know they have a family history. Don't find out until later. Uh, Ellen, if you would jump on this for me and just kind of share how important it is for everybody, healthy people included, to know their background, know their family history. I'm really glad you brought that up, Lee. And it's something that I harp on all of the time for grandparents and for parents that one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is really scoping out your family history and your medical history because we have all sorts of people in this country interested in genealogy and I've seen these beautiful family trees that have dates of birth and dates of death and marriage and absolutely no medical history on them. And so people would bring in these trees and it would do nothing for us. We were The only thing we knew is that a lot of people died at young ages we didn't know of what. So if you're listening to this, and there is one gift you can pass on to your children, grandchildren. It's to take a detailed family history. We need when people were diagnosed with things, at what ages, at what ages they died, your ethnic background. We need some sort, if possible, of an actual tree drawn out that shows these two people were sisters or cousins or second cousins. And this document should be stored with your essential medical records and your essential records. So in a family safe, you should have a copy in your Dropbox so that it can be passed on to the next generation. Because if we all think about it for a minute, you may personally know the history of your parents, maybe of your grandparents, but could you tell me right now about your grandparents, brothers and sisters and their children? and their health histories? My guess is no, you couldn't. And so when the grandparents or the family historians die in a family, oftentimes all of that history is swept away with them. This affected me personally. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor. Both of my parents, uh, one is my mother is 79, my father is 80, perfectly healthy, no issues whatsoever, no cancer, no heart disease, thank goodness. But it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I heard from my mother, oh yeah, my father died of colon cancer and so did one of his sisters. I was like, it would have been good to know this a little bit earlier. Wow. <laughs> uh, Why do you think she didn't share that with you before, Lee? That's a question I don't have an answer to. I could swear growing up that I somehow I had it in my head and my, my maternal grandfather passed away when I was seven, and I always believed it was from stomach cancer. Mm. So either I misheard or perhaps we didn't want to talk about it, not be, about it being in the bowels. I don't know. 
And there's the, there's this whole thing about uh, we, we can do a whole show just on colon cancer and the fact that it's one of those things that people don't like to talk about. But I don't know that we have enough time to go into branch off there. But um, it, so there's my personal story that it, it, this has affected me as well. And I found in my many years of clinical experience that this is a very, very common story and that particularly for parents, people of your parents' generation or older, that you actually didn't really want to talk about cancer. It was kind of like a kinahora or an evil eye. And that it was, <laughs> seriously, and mm -hmm. that it was best just never to mention it again. And that's how people felt. I agree. So for people that don't have that family history knowledge, uh, and I'm referring to the listeners of this podcast, people who have been diagnosed or are caring for someone that have been diagnosed with colon cancer. And once they get, unfortunately, that, that, that news that, that that's the case, what is your recommendation from a genetic counseling standpoint that people do? So my first recommendation, no matter how old you are at diagnosis, is to ask your surgeon or your oncologist or both if your tumor was sent away for MSI or IHC testing, standing for microsatellite instability or immunohistochemistry, these are two screens that can be done on the actual tumor itself that would give your doctor a sense of whether you might be at increased risk for colon cancer. Even if you're diagnosed at age 70 and you have no family history whatsoever that you know of, if that comes back positive, you are a candidate for genetic counseling. If you didn't have MSI or IHC and you've had a colon cancer diagnosis within the last seven to 10 years, believe it or not, it's still possible. Those tumors are often kept in paraffin wax in the pathology lab for at least seven, sometimes up to 20 years. And sometimes you can go back and request that archived tissue and have the testing done on the tissue. But very importantly, even if your MSI or IHC came back negative, or if you didn't have MSI or IHC, if you have a strong personal or family history of other colon cancers, particularly early onset cancers below the age of 50, and it's not just colon, it's colorectal, it's anywhere in the GI tract, and or a family or personal history of uterine cancer, of ovarian cancer, a urinary tract cancer, or a sebaceous adenoma or carcinoma of the skin, if any of those things are kind of, you know, making bells go off for you, then you probably need a referral to genetic counseling. Or for people who've had more than one primary GI cancer, gastrointestinal cancer over the course of their lifetime. I see. Georgia, you you mentioned your genetic counselor. Am I making a correct assumption that you and that individual uh, have a close relationship? Um, yes, yes. Actually, um, we're so close that we have the same hairdresser. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's pretty and close. I, I get to see her um, every six weeks because we schedule our appointments on the same day. Ironically, but. Yeah, we're, you know, I'm an, I'm an anomaly in that case. Yes, she and I do maintain contact. And I think it's very important to seek out genetic counseling. I believe it's essential in the genetic testing process. I, I think a lot of people don't realize how important and how resourceful and what fonts of knowledge 
genetic counselors are. And I'm really glad Ellen is on because I know there are people that live in areas where there are not genetic counselors immediately available to them and that they have to drive a long distance. And I'm hoping Ellen can tell you a little bit more about how people can get genetic counseling that they need before they get genetically tested because the emotional gravity of these hereditary cancer syndromes or other syndromes that people get tested for is enormous and immeasurable and it's difficult for them to deal with. And I think a genetic counselor is very helpful in getting these people the resources they need to help them navigate through this journey. And Ellen, would you mind telling people like how they could go about doing that, especially if they live in rural areas and whatnot? I'd be happy to. And in fact, I'd love to just take a step back and explain that even though the term is genetic counseling, this isn't psychological counseling. This isn't therapy. This is seeing a professional who helps you map out your personal and family history and medical information to help you decide if you're a candidate for genetic testing, which test you should have, and also to help your, you get your insurance to cover that testing. If you don't have insurance, the genetic counselor can often help you find resources to get your testing paid, um, and there are such resources. And so if you are looking for a genetic counselor, another thing I have to tell you is a lot of people are throwing up a shingle saying, oh, I do genetic counseling. And so it's important to ask, are you a certified genetic counselor? Because your gastroenterologist, your surgeon, your oncologist, your oncology nurse, they may have some basic information about genetics, but I would say 95% of them don't have formal training in genetics. And my group over the last 15 years, we've written three papers about what happens when genetic testing interpretation goes wrong. And we've had patients who one patient had a syndrome called FAP that involves childhood onset of hundreds or thousands of colon polyps in cancer. And her doctor, her well-meaning oncologist said, oh, you need to have your uterus removed because he was thinking of Lynch syndrome. And she did have her uterus removed. And so, you know, for a lot of people, it all swirls together. So make sure you're getting yourself to someone who really understands genetics you can find such a professional by going to the National Society of Genetic Counseling website, nsgc.org, and searching under Find a Counselor. And if there's not a counselor in your area, or if the wait to see a counselor in your area is too long, we now have phone counseling available. And I'm very impressed because, and I should mention, I'm not affiliated with any of the phone counseling companies. But the reason I'm impressed is that they have counselors who speak all different languages. They have a sign language interpretation. They have evenings and weekends and before work and after work and all different time zones. And they work with insurance companies. And so we no longer have to say, oh, access to genetic counseling is a problem because you can go to these companies and just one of the many companies offering this is informed DNA. And you can get the counseling you need, and often from one of the country's top experts. So let me ask you this, Ellen. I'm going to do a fill in the blank. A good genetic counselor will what? A good genetic counselor will take a very detailed three, four, or five generation family history 
and talk to you about the pros, the cons, and the limitations of genetic testing before ever offering you testing. And I should say to your listeners that if you're on the fence about genetic testing, you can go in, learn all about it, and walk out without having it. This is a chance for you to learn your options. For someone like myself, and I imagine there's people listening in the exact same boat that I am, uh, stage four colon cancer survivor, but neither, neither of my two siblings have colon cancer, nor did my parents, but there is a grandparent and an, and an aunt. Should I be concerned about my two children, two boys in their 20s? And if so, what recommendations do you have about getting them counseled and tested and doing so uh, with um, getting covered by insurance? So I think in that situation, it's certainly worth locking down your personal history and your family history as you know it with a genetic counselor so that that document is formalized and that the medical records they would need from you, that we have them, they're locked in, and to offer you testing options. That's been done. That's been done for me. So you're thinking about your kids now. Correct. And so if a mutation was found in your family and proven to be the mutation tracking with the colon cancers in your family, um, or if at least that's hypothesized, I think it makes sense for the children. And I've seen children, believe it or not, as early as 13 years old who were very, very concerned about a parent's mutation and just had them in to sit down and talk about their options, although we had no intention of testing them at age 13. But it was something bothering them so much that they just needed to learn about it and know that they had options. So I would say, depending on the gene and depending on the family history, in most cases, we should do this by age 25 and younger in some families, depending on the syndrome and the family history. There was no mutation discovered during my testing. Mm, So that makes it trickier. You just mentioned something, Ellen, and I'm going to turn this over to Georgia. You said that the family you were talking about wanted the testing done at a very young age because it was weighing on them. Georgia, tell me about what that's like to know you have a genetic syndrome and the weight that that bears on you and the and you know from a psychological standpoint i think it's a very um difficult position to be in my personal experience of having lost my mother at the age of nine and then watching my brother die from colon cancer and then watching my other brother go through colon cancer, I kind of have a different perspective, I think, compared to a lot of other people because I have lost a sibling and I have lost a parent at a young age. And my brother did leave behind an eight-month-old baby when he died. Most people that I speak with are usually losing their parents, so their perspective is a little different than mine. The the fact of the matter is is that my greatest challenge with having Lynch syndrome is knowing that I may have passed this on unknowingly to my son. And it is the biggest issue I deal with every day. And he is fully aware of everything I've been through. He knows about Lynch syndrome. He knows that he may have a 50-50 chance of having the mutation, but 
there's nothing in our family history to suggest that he be tested before he's 18 or 25. So, you know, we're going to hold off. I don't, I don't think it would be appropriate for him to know at this point. I don't think it would be doing him any favors. Would I like to know if he has the mutation? Absolutely. But I don't think it would really behoove any of us at this point. I really want him to have as normal as a, of a childhood as possible. And I think testing him would kind of take that away from him. And, and it would give him something to fret over that he really wouldn't be able to do anything about anyway, because this is typically an adult onset issue. So, How old is he? He's 12. So you've, you shared this conversation with him though, which. Yeah. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, yes, yes. We've talked about it at great length. So, and he does not want to be tested right now. Interesting. Even if he had the option, he said he wants to wait. He's too busy doing other things as he should be. So, so someone listening to the show, either they themselves or someone they are, you know, care deeply about that has been diagnosed with colon cancer. And at this point, that's all they know. They have colon cancer. From a genetic standpoint, what do you recommend, Ellen? As I said, make sure that your doctors are ordering microsatellite instability or immunohistochemistry on the tumor itself. You can make that request if it's not standard of care at your hospital. And also contact the family elders. Even if you are positive there is no family history, contact the family elders and start digging. Did anyone else have colon cancer? What age? How about uterine cancer? How about ovarian cancer? A urinary tract cancer? Pancreatic cancer? See what else you can find because your story, Lee, unfortunately is not uncommon that it's only after a diagnosis that people do the, oh, you know what? And, oh, you know what? My cousin had this. And so oftentimes the family history is unearthed over time. Georgia, when we spoke earlier, you had a wonderful suggestion of making this a topic over holiday dinner. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I Share that with the listeners. I thought that was wonderful. Um, I actually wrote a blog post on my website. I have lynchsyndrome.com. I believe it was in October where I where I say, you know, holidays are a stellar time to gather one's medical family history. And I really encouraged people during the holidays, especially during Thanksgiving and Christmas or Hanukkah, where multi-generations are present, and to kind of fill in those gaps in regards to the medical family history and find out what's going on on both sides as much as you can. It's very, very important, and it can be very life-saving. You know, as, as scary as genetic testing can be, I really believe that genetic counseling coupled with genetic testing and having the prophylactic surgeries saved my life. And I believe that I'm doing everything that I can to maintain my health. And I think by knowing my status, I'm also doing my son a huge favor. And I know that one day he will also be tested. And so I think it's really important. It's not only about you. It has implications for many other people in your life. And I think people need to remember that, especially when they're parents, because your life is no longer your own. It belongs to your kids, too. So Sure. 
Go ahead and uh, share the uh, how people can find your website again, Georgia. I'm at IHaveLynchSyndrome.com, and I'm also on Twitter at SheWithLynch. And then we also have a uh, hereditary cancer chat, which Ellen, Amy, Byer-Shaman, and I hold every four to six weeks where we talk about hereditary cancer syndromes and the various issues that surround them. Um, Ellen, would you like to tell them about our upcoming chat? I would love to. Our next chat is actually next week. Georgia, do you have the date in front of you? It's on the 29th on Wednesday at 9 o'clock Eastern. And anyone can join. All you have to do is go to twitter.com and put in the hashtag HCChat, and you can follow the thread. It's going to be about getting your sexy back after an oophorectomy or a hysterectomy. And so um, many people with Lynch syndrome and with other syndromes have to have their ovaries and or their uterus removed. And so we want to talk about how that can affect. But let me let me interrupt you for a second, Ellen. This probably isn't going to go out to the audience till about May 11th. Uh, so do we have one on the calendar yet for May? Well, even on May 11th, you can go to Twitter and follow this chat. So you can go back and look at the transcript, which will be helpful. Okay. Do we have one scheduled for May yet? Uh, not yet, but we will, I think. Yes, okay. Definitely. Very yeah. good. I apologize for interrupting. I just didn't want people to <laughs> get freaked out when they uh, find the podcast in the middle of May and hear April 29th. But that's good to know that they can go back and read the archives. And that's an important, really important topic to be covered. Yeah. And Ellen can be found at My Gene Council on Twitter as well. Yes. Please follow us on Twitter. And we also have a website and a blog at, also at MyGeneCouncil.com. So, Ellen, would you mind telling him basically what your company does? Oh, I would love to. So, Lee, after 20 years in the field of cancer genetic counseling, as I mentioned, I saw many errors being made that people were having genetic testing and their test results were being misinterpreted. And also, even as a clinician, it's almost impossible to keep people updated as the field changes, as surveillance changes, as our knowledge updates. I followed 8,000 people at Yale. It's hard to give them all a call and update them. So what we've done in the digital health arena is develop a way to couple genetic test results um, with an information stream, one for clinicians and one for consumers to keep them updated. And for all those people out there who feel like, wow, I just really didn't understand my genetic test results and I'm never updated, I never go back to my clinician for updates, this is a way that you, you don't have to watch the evening news or try and decipher medical articles. This will come to you. Sounds like I might be a candidate for this. <laughs> <laughs> I fall into that group you just des described. So hopefully, we're hopeful that we can help a lot of people this way. That's fantastic. That's a great service that you're providing. Well, Georgia and Ellen, thank you so much for making the time to uh, share your really valuable information that I, I know will benefit many, many people. And uh, thank you again. And good luck to both of you, Georgia. And I wish you continued good health. And thanks for being on the show. It's our Thank pleasure. You. Thank you very much, Lee.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www.ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.